This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and joined as always by George Smith. George, how are you doing? I'm not bad, mate. How's things with yourself? Yes, good, thank you. Uh, eventful weekend, of course, in the Championship. Loads of goals, unfortunately, in some of the games that were draws, so we won't go in as, as much depth as usual, but some great games. Obviously, plenty to talk about on the managerial front as well, so it's a podcast I'm very much looking forward to. Um, how about yourself? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. It's been quite a, you know, quite a intense, relentless few days, hasn't it? It all started on Friday night with the Luton-Sheffield United game. Plenty of goals on Saturday, a managerial change. Yeah, it's been a weekend that has featured pretty much everything. A few dodgy refereeing decisions, a hat-trick as well. So, yeah, looking forward to getting stuck into this one. Absolutely. Uh, as always, a reminder to make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed, which you can find on all your usual platforms. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24. Big thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast this season. If you're looking to take car payments with no contract or monthly fees, make sure you visit cardsaccepted.co.uk. They provide a discount on the RRP of all sum-up devices, so please make sure you go and check them out. Really appreciative once again of their support this season. And on today's podcast, say we're going to be diving into a managerial change at Stoke and at Sunderland, as well as plenty of goals and action. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. And George, the best place to start is, of course, with the decision this week for Stoke City to part company with Michael O'Neill. It was something we talked about in quite a lot of depth on the podcast last week. So, first of all, we'll start with the decision, albeit that's probably the, the smallest of the talking points, given what's uh, transcended since then. We, we talked order. about this. We, yeah, exactly. We talked about it last week in depth. I, I made my feelings clear that he was on a sticky wicket and running out of time, and I think it was fair to sack him. I, I said that last week. The fact they've now sacked him goes to show that they were clearly of similar thinking. Any surprises at the timing of the decision at all? Well, I think you, you've got to look at it and say we are still very, very early into the season. I think that's obviously the one defence that Michael O'Neill could have used in, in his case to plead his innocence and try and avoid the chop. They'd obviously not had the best of starts. It was just one win from their first five. And, you know, they have recruited quite well in the summer. They've brought in a lot of experienced championship players. Obviously, Dwight Gale, even though he's on such a torrid run in front of goal, was kind of a statement signing. You felt, obviously, a very good pedigree at this level. And you thought they, they've improved the squad off last season, but they didn't, you know, get off to a good start. They had the win over Blackpool in their second game. And you thought, yep, they won the first home game. Three points in the first two games. Solid enough start, having played at Millwall away. But they didn't build on that. That was the problem. They didn't build on that. They took, obviously, a bit of a stuff in at Huddersfield recently. They required a late equaliser against Middlesbrough. And they just never looked fluid and fluent, have they? They didn't look like the players were in, you know, in a system that they understood and recognised. And it's a shame because I know you were a big fan of Michael O'Neill initially when he first came in, did a really, really good job in steadying the ship and bringing the good times back. Hopefully that was the plan. But it just never really worked out. Obviously, back-to-back mid-table-ish finishes. And obviously, the, as I said, the recruitment was good in this summer, which looked as though it was going to lead to an improved campaign. But... It's not been the case and, you know, by the end of August, it's cost him his job, which is a real shame because there is a good manager in there. Obviously, he was poached from the Northern Ireland job to get the Stoke job a few years ago and initially it looked like a really good move. He, he, you know, he got them playing some really nice stuff. They were scoring a lot of goals and things like that. Obviously, in his defence, he's been robbed of his best players altogether at once for a lot of his tenure. Injuries really have taken their toll at the Bet365 Stadium. And unfortunately for him, it's cost him his job in reality. But like I said, the players didn't look as though they were enjoying the system that they started the season with. They they were struggling, they didn't look fluid, they didn't look vibrant. And ultimately, it's cost him his job. So I think based on what the expectations are for Stoke and the start they've had, it is the correct decision. But at the same time, it's still very, very early on. And who knows, would he have changed things? Would have things improved for the better? Maybe, maybe not. It's one of those we'll never know now. But... You can't say that Stoke haven't been ruthless in their decision-making. To have done it this early, it sends out a clear message that they're not willing to mess about this season. 
They are very clear that they want to do things. They want to achieve, you know, top six this season. And they've made their decision. So Michael O'Neill out the door and a certain uh, certain Scotsman's taken on the job this afternoon as we record on Sunday. Yep, official confirmation this afternoon that Alex Neal is the new manager of Stoke City. Obviously, I watched Blackburn Rovers 1-0 defeat to Stoke on Saturday and Alex Neal was sat probably three rows in front of me in the director's box because the way the press box is, the director's box is right below it but on the same sort of level. So, um, literally could have walked down and had a chat with him but I think I'd have been escorted away so I didn't do that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good appointment for us, for Stoke ultimately and it it's a surprise but it's not a surprise that Stoke have gone after him because they've wanted him before. He very nearly made this move when he was at Preston North End. They tried to get him then. It's clearly someone that, that Stoke admire and I think that I've always been a big Alex Neil fan and I think some people really did forget how good a manager he, he was and how good a job he did at Preston for a couple of years. Things always go stale when you're trying to when you're there for such a period of time in management, modern day management, if you're there for more than three years, things can go a little bit stale. And particularly when you're trying to punch above your weight season after season, which on the budget he had at Preston was what he was trying to do. He's gone to Sunderland. They went on a 16 plus game on Beaton Street when he came in, got them promoted. And he's made a fantastic start to, to this season with them as well. The only surprise for me is how, quickly he was to leave Sunderland given the size of the football club you would have to say Sunderland is a bigger club than Stoke City albeit Stoke is at quite you know we're talking about two quite big clubs but Sunderland when they're getting 40,000 for most home games it's a it's a huge football club he just got them back into the championship and they were playing good football and showing they could they could cope with the level I think the summer recruitment has been decent I think he's been backed in some some areas but I think there's been some suggestion that some of the players weren't his picks or he felt he could have been back more. And ultimately, I think what comes into this is is money. I think the contract he was on at Sunderland, from what I understand, was a, a one-year rolling deal, albeit it was that Sunderland did offer him fresh terms and renewed his contract earlier this month. But I still think he was on a one-year rolling deal. And he's gone to Stoke City, who we know have got plenty of money, will have offered him more money and, more importantly, uh, a larger length of contract. I think he's signed for three years, having a brief read of the uh, the club statement put out this afternoon whilst working. And I think when you look at transfer input, maybe that might be a consideration for him. The contract and also the location. He's, you know, he lives in Preston. I know I was talking to some people at Blackburn yesterday. He lives in Preston, um, so it's a much easier commute for him. So when you put all those things together, that's probably why he's done it. But I am surprised a little bit that he was that quick to jump ship from Sunderland. But equally, they should be tying down their asset earlier. If they've left him on a one-year deal, whether they renewed his terms earlier this month um, in terms of a wage enhance and tried to obviously give him a new contract when it shouldn't have took um, Stoke coming in for them to offer him a new deal in terms of length. This isn't about money just on its own because clearly he got a pay rise at the start of the month. But why would you not tie him down to a longer deal? You've seen what he can do. He can build things. So I do think Sunderland's board have got to take some responsibility for that. And probably, ultimately, he wouldn't have gone for no reason, would he? Because Sunderland's a big football club. So I do think they've got to take some share of the blame. And I think Stoke have made a really, really good appointment. I think he's a really good manager. I've rated him for a long time. And I'm intrigued to see what he does with the team. Yeah, we'll start, obviously, by looking at it from the Stoke angle. For them, it's a brilliant appointment, isn't it? They've brought in a manager you know that knows the championship inside out. He's got a promotion to the Premier League on his CV. Did it with Norwich in 2015, winning the playoff final that year against Middlesbrough. And he did a really good job there. Went to Preston, like you say, steadied the ship there. Did a really good job over the course of his tenure. Just went a little bit stale towards the end. Can argue he didn't get the financial backing that he deserved. But Preston have never been a club that have chucked millions and millions at it. Went to Sunderland after a while out of the game, got them promoted within three or four months of getting the job. Made a terrific start this season, looked encouraging. And, you know, when you look at the players that Stoke have got, such as Jacob Brown, Tyrese Campbell, your Lewis Bakers, they've got good technical players there that are really looking to make a name for themselves in this league this season. 
And you can understand why Alex Neal fans are crack at working with these type of players. And that's no disrespect to the lads at Sunderland who have done a terrific job so far this season. So I think it's obvious that he's looked at it and thought in the bigger picture, they've perhaps got better players. Sunderland haven't backed me the way that I feel I deserve this summer. So I think that is the overriding feeling that a lot of people have that he's not been backed. can understand why Sunderland fans are angry. You can understand it, regardless of what the board have done in terms of backing him or not. He's come in, within a few months he's gone. So they're going to be upset, they're going to be annoyed by it. Because it, it was like he was onto something that, there. That you're just making there. It has been backed in, in, you know, with a few fees. You know, they paid £2 million plus for Dan Ballard. They've paid a fee for Jack Clark. So I do think they've brought in some players and they have backed him in they've some ways. Some... Have whether they've promised more than they've delivered ultimately. But from the outside, they, they have given him some backing this summer. You can't say... He's not had anything, but whether he was promised more and then they haven't delivered, we will never know. Quite possibly. I mean, like you said, they have invested in certain players. Ellis Sims has come in on loan, which has been a good signing so far. But with respect, I don't think they've brought in the number of players that they need to last a championship season. So it is quite possible that he feels like he's been let down in that sense in terms of the volume of players and the length, length of time it's taken to get them through the door. So, for Sunderland now, it's a, it's a huge loss. And I've said it a couple of times already this season in regards to other managerial departures over the summer, such as Corbrand at Huddersfield, Critchley at Blackpool. Sunderland are the same. They've lost their best asset now. It's a huge blow to have lost Alex Neal because I felt he was really onto something there. He got the club. They got him. It was all working nicely together. And let's, not, let's be fair, they've had a good start to the season as well, Sunderland. And obviously, they lost at the weekend, losing to Norwich, which we'll talk about shortly. But overall, they've had a really steady start and it shows what he can be capable of at this level. So, for Stoke, it's a magnificent appointment and their fans should be genuinely excited by this one because it should see an improvement, should in inverted commas. Obviously, we never know in the Championship what can happen, but you would like to think he will have a big impact at the Bet365 for them. So I'm intrigued to see how it goes. It is a shame for Sunderland because they've lost a, a very, very good manager. We know what he's capable of. His track record speaks for itself. And it's just a shame that, you know, five or six games into the, the new chapter of being back in the Championship after four years away, that it's been dismantled and broken up and they've got to build again almost with a new manager. And a lot of pointers at the minute suggesting Tony Mowbray could be the man. Not quite sure if that's going to be like with a genuine link that's going to be the main man to go for, but it'll be interesting to see who else is in the running for this job because Sunderland, the size of the club, they've waited so long to get back into this position. They did not expect to be having to be changing managers within four weeks of the season starting. So it's a decision they've got to get right. It's a huge move. And of course, this will be the third manager they've had this calendar year. Obviously, Lee Johnson, Alex Neil, and now the next man. So they need somebody who can offer some stability and, and, you know, a bit of length in time because Alex Neil, they thought they were going to get that. But unfortunately for them, it's not happened. So for Sunderland, it's an absolute disaster. They'll be gutted. But for Stoke, they should be excited by what's to come, I'd like to think. Yeah, in terms of the game itself, obviously Stoke winning 1-0 at Blackburn Rovers. Um, I thought they were they played well. They were certainly the better team in the first half, but I would argue that was as much Blackburn being pretty awful as it was Stoke being good. And in the second half, Blackburn were the better team. I definitely think that Stoke will come away. I don't think anyone could say Stoke didn't deserve to win. I think if it had been a draw equally, I don't think you could have said that was an unfair result. I have to say, I thought Connor Taylor, centre-back uh, alongside Ender Flint, I thought Connor Taylor was absolutely outstanding. Really, really promising. He's obviously been in the team, play right of the back three for the entirety of the season after being on loan at Bristol Rovers last season. Signed to do contract in the summer. And uh, Stoke moved to a back four for this game, which... Dean Holden claimed was already agreed on with Michael O'Neill, so this wasn't uh, sort of a, a tactical change from Alex Neal perhaps coming in. Um, and him and Aidan Flint just, just won everything. Every header, every aerial duel, every physical challenge, and, and Taylor was fantastic. And him and Harry Souter as two centre-backs, I like the look of that. And when you think of Stoke, really, the, the academy that's produced in terms of centre-backs, Souter, Nathan Collins, that obviously was sold to Burnley, um, and now Connor Taylor as well. They've certainly got uh, a bit of a production line going on there. Ryan Shawcross, of course, one that came through uh, not so long ago as well. So they've certainly got some options there. Was not wowed by the performance, but they were still defensively solid and, and got a second win of the season, which was important for them. 
And from a Rovers perspective, really shocking first half. And again, that's cost them because in the three defeats they've made, they've had in a row, they haven't scored in any, and they've been losing at half time because they've just been abject in the first half. They were horrific at Reading. They were really bad here today and slightly better against Sheffield United, but again, second best. So Yondal Thompson's got some work to do. And Dom Hyams coming in from Coventry is having a medical today. And uh, Seth Vandenberg should sign as well in the next 24 hours. And, and they're looking to get one more in before Thursday's transfer deadline. Assuming that Ben Brereton-Diaz stays, if he goes, then there will be more than uh, more than those three coming into the club. George Hurst is someone that uh, we exclusively revealed on Lanks Live is someone they're looking at. Obviously scored 15 goals for Portsmouth last season, but hasn't cut it at championship level. Had a really bad loan with Rotherham. So we'll see where they go from here as well. Um, in terms of Sunderland, George, as you touched on a minute ago, Tony Mowbray has been the name most heavily linked. Some reports in the national media even suggesting he's already accepted the job. So I think it's fair to talk about this because I think it seems quite far down the line. Obviously, someone that I dealt with last season with, with Blackburn Rovers is certainly a steady pair of hands and I don't think it should go under the radar what a good job he did at Rovers to bring them from the depths of despair, really, when they got relegated into League One and stabilise them as a team pushing for the playoffs in the Championship. He was back during that period, but equally did a very good job, but it just went stale at the end. I have to say, if I was a Sunderland fan, I would probably think it's a little bit unambitious or a little bit... It's not a very sexy appointment when you've lost Alex Neal, is it? It's not a swap that you would be happy with. Let's say someone like Liam Manning, for example, they appointed. Whilst you'd be gutted about losing Alex Neal, it's something to get excited about nonetheless. Tony Mowbray, I think less so, but I don't think you should disrespect what he's achieved in the Championship. And it'll be interesting to see what, what they do there. It was They were unlucky to lose 1-0, I thought, to Norwich. Both to, strange 1-0 game, considering the amount of chances both teams created. Obviously, Ross Stewart hitting the bar. Um, there was one cleared off the line by Hanley as well. Uh, but Norwich also had their chances as well. And obviously, it was a really nice move for the winner. Um, Pukki, who come off the bench, slipped it hard and low down, the, down, the, uh, down between the goalkeeper and the centre-backs. And... Um, Josh Sargent there to tap in for his fourth in three games in the league. So, plenty to work with at Sunderland. As I say, they, they, they played well at the weekend despite the obvious off-field distractions. But I'm not I'm not sure that I can judge a Sunderland fan if they weren't over, over the moon about a potential Tony Mowbray appointment. But I do think it's probably a better appointment than some people will think. Definitely, but I think the biggest factor you've got to remember in this is the fact that Alex Neal is easily going to be compared to whoever comes in purely because he's guided them to promotion very, very recently. He, he set the bar and, you know, they've started this season well. He was on to something, like I said a few minutes ago. So he is going to be, whoever gets the job, he's going to be compared to Alex Neal. And we know Alex Neal is considered one of the better managers in the EFL and has been for quite a few years. So. Tony Mowbray, for me, would be a downgrade. I do agree. But it's not to say it would be a bad appointment because, like you've said, he did a good job at Blackburn in the grand scheme of things overall. And he's got a lot of experience under his belt. Obviously, managed Middlesbrough, West Brom. I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head. Celtic for a little while. So, you know, he's not exactly um, short on experience at big clubs. So that's one thing that he has got in his armoury. But you just feel that it is slightly underwhelming because obviously Blackburn fans grew frustrated towards the end of his time with the style of play. Sunderland have been quite exciting and entertaining to watch under Alex Neal. But the players are still there. That's the thing for whoever gets the job. They're still inheriting a very good group of players and they're developing a front two that have had a storming start to the season in Ross Stewart and Alex Sims. Both look very, very comfortable at this level, particularly Stewart, obviously never having played in the Championship before. He looks quality. But the question is now, will Alex Neal come sniffing in the final few days of the window? There's always a always a chance that he might want to take maybe one or two with him to Stoke. Not saying it could be Ross Stewart, it could be anybody. But, you know, whoever does get that job, Tony Mowbray, whoever it is, they're, they're inheriting a decent group of players. They, they've proven themselves in the last six months that they've developed a winning mentality. They're used to winning games. So it's going to be interesting to see who gets that job. But Sunderland, let's be honest, it's a big club. It's a massive city with big expectations. They're a Premier League club at the end of the day. 
So there is going to be an expectation for whoever gets that job to go in there and make a real impact from the off. So it's certainly going to be a job that comes with pressure. There's no doubt about that. So it'll be interesting to see who gets it. Tony Mowbray, for me, slightly underwhelming, but it's not to say it'll be a bad appointment. I mean, I'm trying to think of names who are available at the minute. Obviously, the, the big one that everybody's going to talk about is Sean Dyche. Can't see it happening for two minutes. I think he'll be holding out for a Premier League job. So... You know, for managers out of work, it's not the, the greatest pool to be picking from at the minute. So, be interesting to see what they do. But as I say, Mowbray wouldn't be the worst appointment in the world for me. No, I don't think so either. But uh, I think we'll take a look at the rest of the championship action now. And Hull City, five goal thriller, another dramatic home match. And they beat Coventry City 3 2 at home. Um, Oscar Estupinan is the championship's top goal scorer, George, <laughs> with a hat trick. Here for the Tigers. He's had a really fast start to life on Humberside. Really good predator instinct. I think if you looked at his goals in terms of the the combined yardage uh, this season, I don't think you're going to get above probably 20, really, because they've all been close-range, predatory finishers. That's absolutely not a a slight in any means. It's exactly the sort of player they needed, because I think someone like Benjamin Tetti, who's done well coming in as a strike partner, he's quite good at running the channels he's got a bit of pace a bit of athleticism and he's just the fox in the box a stupid on isn't he great predatory uh reactions for the first goal to divert it in with his head and the third goal as well just reacts quicker than the defenders after the ball bounces off uh, off simon moore and the second one he gets a massive slice of luck and a bit of help because again for the for you know the second time in recent succession a a goalkeeping error from Moore, uh, something we touched on during the Millwall game, which they lost. And Coventry, again, have lost by the odd goal. So that, that is proving costly at the minute. But really good for Hull. They've had a really good start. And I think for me, the most important thing for Hull is my reservations about Avaladzi in particular were their home form. Because away from home last season, they were pretty good when he came in, but they couldn't buy a win in front of their own fans. Now there's a really good feel-good factor at, at the stadium after the takeover anyway in the summer they've had. Um, they didn't have uh, Tufan for this one either, who's been injured, and they still managed to get the win. So I've been really impressed with Hull so far, particularly that the, the home form has really turned around, which is what I think they'll need if they're going to damage the top 10. They're going to need a, a good home form. They can't rely solely on the, their away form. And it was a good win, albeit Coventry put up a really good fight as well and will probably feel a bit unlucky to leave without a point, especially when you throw in the, the error from Simon Moore. Yeah, definitely. I mean, let's start with a stupid hand. You're never going to see a scruffier, more ugly hat-trick in your life. Let's be honest, it was not very pleasant to witness, but like you say, it was in the right place at the right time and that's what all good strikers do. He was a poacher. And he's benefiting from the way Hull are putting the ball into the right area. I mean, seven goals already. He's adapting to life in the championship with absolute ease. So, for him, it's been a terrific start. It really has. And Hull have desperately needed a goal scorer at this level for some time in terms of an out-and-out striker. Obviously, Keane Lewis-Potter was coming in off the flank. Jared Bowen the same in recent years. So, it's nice to see that they've finally got an out-and-out number nine delivering the goods through the middle of the pitch. Overall, though... Another topsy-turvy game, wasn't it? Like we've seen in the past with Coventry at Millwall. But Hull just found the way to get the job done. It wasn't overly brilliant to watch. It wasn't particularly pleasing on the eye. But when you're winning games at this level, it doesn't matter how they come. And Hull already are only one of three teams that have picked up maximum points at home so far. It's nine from nine for the Tigers already at home. Beating Bristol City on the opening day. Edge past Norwich a couple of weeks ago. And now this one against Coventry. So... It's been a really encouraging start for the Tigers on home soil. Obviously, got a decent point away at Burnley as well, let's not forget. Only lost once so far. So, for Avalazzi, it's been a really encouraging start because we've both, you know, questioned him and is he the right man to lead Hull forward? At the minute, he's proven exactly he's the man. And let's not forget, obviously, such a high intake of new faces that you've got to bed in, obviously. It's a much improved squad to what we saw last season but when you bring in that many new players it takes time to gel so for what they've had to do and what they're working with they've had a really really good start to the season we've sat third in the table locked on points with Sheffield United after the first three six games you know any whole fan in the world would just snap your hand off at that so it's looking really encouraging the new signings a lot of them are having an impact of course the Stupinans taking all the credit with his seven goals already I mean it's a remarkable return when you think about it 
few assists thrown in in there as well. So, you know, things looking good. We didn't have it all thrown away, though, against Coventry, let's be said. You know, Coventry, we've not really talked about them much this season because obviously their issues with their home ground. They've, they've only played three games. We've barely seem to have mentioned them at all. They've only played three games by the end of August. Finally getting back to go home in midweek, if you're listening to this before the midweek action. So, for Coventry, Mark Robbins, will be, he'll be disappointed with the fact that they've only taken one point from the first three games. But you've got to factor in the fact that they've had three away games in that run. They, they played the newly promoted Sunderland in the first game, which was also about playing the occasion as well as the opponents. They went to Millwall and lost by the odd goal in five. Uh, again, a really difficult place to go. They went to Hull, who have won all three games at home so far, again by the odd goal. So when you consider who they've played and the pattern of their fixtures, I don't think there's any reason to realistically panic for Coventry. Once they get back on their own turf, once they get into a proper rhythm of playing matches consistently, we will see the you know the benefit of what they can do. So looking at the table, if you looked at the point, Stanley, you think they've had a really, really bad start, shocking, awful. Then you just move along a few columns and see the number of games played and you think, oh, right, wait a minute, let's cut them some slack. Not worried at all about Coventry. They'll be disappointed they've not won any of their opening three, but when you consider who they've played all the way from home, I think it's fair to say that they'll they'll only be looking up in the weeks to come. So I'm not concerned about them at all. Good for Matty Godden as well. A couple of goals for him. Completely agree on Coventry. Couldn't be less concerned. I think they played really well in, in a lot of those games. And sloppy defending and, and bad goalkeeping and individual errors have cost them more than their general play. They, they do need to get one on the board. And it's good that this home situation is getting resolved and they'll be back there midweek because the longer it goes on, obviously, the, the pressure will build that they need to get results. But I'm not concerned at all, and I think they'll be. I think there's definitely a lot poorer side than Coventry. I think they've played well, and I think tighten up at the back. Also, play regularly. That will definitely help. These teams, they are ultimately a few weeks behind the rest, having had a fortnight break a couple of times. So I'm not worried about Coventry in the slightest either. I completely agree with you. You've hit the nail on the head there. Um, another five-goal thriller, this one at Vicarage Road. Watford losing 3-2 to Queen's Park Rangers. I know we've said this so many times, but QPR are such a different team with Chris Willock in them, aren't they? He's just their best player by a country mile. Like I know they're people all, talk about Willock and Chair together, but Willock is just their best player. He's better than Chair. Yeah. He, he has a bigger impact is, on this team. And there's definitely not any other championship team that are any harder to predict than QPR. You just never know what they're going to do. They could be one week brilliant up there or the next week absolutely shocking. It's like you wouldn't expect, no disrespect to Rotherham, them to get a point at home to Rotherham and then go and win at Watford scoring three. The championship. Simple as that. Absolutely. That's the challenge for McBeal this season to try and level out that those fluctuations, get some consistency. And in this game, they didn't create actually buckets of chances. If you look at some of the underlying data, they, they didn't create masses of brilliant clear-cut chances. I think the XG was about 0.61. But they were very clinical in those uh, in those moments, took the chances. And they were good value from from what we've seen. Um, Watford, I think it's fair to say they're still adapting. I think the transfer window shutting for them is going to be the best thing. And I do think, I'm not really worried about Watford. I do think they'll kick on once the transfer window shut. They've obviously lost Dennis. Although Pedro and uh, Ismail Asar are still there. They've they've not really been playing because there's been moves on and off to Queen's Park Range. uh, Sorry, to Aston Villa and to Newcastle United. So I'm not really worried about Watford. I think they'll kick on. They'll get uh, Keenan Davies fit as well. Aspria looks a really good and bright um, addition as well. He, he, he caught the eye against Preston in the one all draw in the nil nil draw. Sorry, last week, and he, he had a bright moment here, um, setting up a chance which which led to a goal, but was uh, disall- uh, that that QPR thought should have been disallowed for the equaliser. Probably was a foul, I think, really, but. Uh, QPR went down the other end and got the winner anyway in that, so it didn't really matter. But really good result for QPR, but not not too worried about a little stutter in the road for Watford either, because I think they've not really hit top gear. They've got and they've got you know quite fair reasons for the for the recent drop off and and the distractions around the club at the minute. Oh, definitely. There's so many noises going off in the background, isn't there? And it was always going to be the case with Watford because obviously they came down for the Premier League with such a quality calibre of player. Obviously, Emmanuel Dennis has sealed his move to Forest week and a half, two weeks ago now. Ismail Assar last weekend looked as though he was going to go to Aston Villa. That collapsed. João Pedro has been on and off to Newcastle. 
So, you know, Rob Edwards has not exactly had the stability that he would have wanted at the start of this season, but he'll just be longing now for Thursday night, come 11pm, whether they're still there or they're gone. He, he needs some clarity and some closure. On the game itself on Saturday, I thought QPR were brilliant. I really did. I thought they were so, so good. From the highlights I've seen, Ethan Laird caught my eye quite a fair bit on loan from Manchester United. And there's such a, you know, there's such an onus on the QPR fullbacks to bomb forward and, and provide some width because obviously QPR plays so narrow at the top end of the pitch with Willock and Chair. And Ethan Laird, the way he got forward and created that second goal on Saturday was just superb. And that's what he'll be looking to do. Mick Beal's been really impressed by him since he's come in. Um, Man United have still got deep, relatively high hopes for Ethan Laird as well because their right-back situation long-term is certainly not solved at the minute with obviously Diogo Dallo in there and uncertainty around Wan-Bissaka's future. So it's a big opportunity for Ethan Laird this season. And obviously he looked really good at Swansea, didn't he, last season in the first half of the campaign. Went to Bournemouth in January, lost his way, injury issues impacted him. So it, it derailed his season. But if he can get a full season at one club now, playing week in, week out, I think it'll serve him very, very well and it'll serve QPR well because there's a very, very good player in there. So overall for QPR, a really, really good away performance, a really good away win and a word on Albert Adoma as well. I mean, got the winner last time they went to Watford a couple of years ago. So he's got a thing about scoring at Vicarage Road and as well as that for him, every time he's scored in a championship game for them, QPR wins. So he seems to be a good luck charm for them, Albert Adoma. So he picked his moment, picked the right time, but for Mick Beale, I mean, that that's a way to send out a statement that we are, you know, going to knock on the door of the playoffs this year. Absolutely. Perhaps the biggest winners of the weekend, George, was Burnley, certainly in terms of numbers. Their 5-1 victory at Wigan Athletic, ending the Latics' unbeaten start to the championship season. An emphatic style as well. Um, first win for Burnley since the opening day in the league. A lot of frustrating draws. I feel like there's a lot of games they've probably been the better side in haven't taken their chances and I think it it, it was almost um, it was almost like a, a, a mayo bottle where that's you can't quite get get the uh, get the mayonnaise to come out you keep banging it and then suddenly a whole splurge comes out and that's where Burnley have been at uh, at the DW stadium this weekend I think Jay Rodriguez pouncing for the first I want to talk about Josh Brownhill because I think he might be one of the best midfielders in the championship I think he's probably a Premier League player and I think we've seen that in the early weeks I actually prefer I think in the Premier League, he's good enough to play deeper. But in the Championship, he's just a goal threat, which he wasn't. I think you can see the development from when he was in this league last time with Bristol City. He wasn't as much as a goal threat, albeit playing in a, a better team this time. But it looks like he can score all sorts of goals. You know, he, he had a, a one-man battle against Daniel Backman at Watford and unfortunately didn't score that one. But he scored a world worldie last weekend against Blackpool and two really good finishes here, different kinds of goals, really good composure for the second one where he chops back inside and fires it left-footed in the near post. Um, Bastian and Teller getting on the score sheet as well. And Burnley, they'll like that they have uh, four different scorers as well because you know goals have been a, a concern in terms of who's going to get them because they have created a lot of chances, but putting them in the net hasn't been easy. I still think they need a striker before the deadline. We still haven't seen anything of Scott Twine as well, who's someone to come back that hopefully will get some goals for them. And when you look at the stats again, that remarkably they only created an expected goals tally of 1.05. So it shows how clinical they were in this game to have scored five times from that. Probably a little bit of variance, as I say, because I think they've had games where they've been the better team previously, had the chances, wasted them with with slightly um, wasteful finishing. But on this one, um, all the mayonnaise came out of the bottle and, and they won 5-1. They certainly did. They they were very, very good, I must admit. I thought Josh Brownhill was absolutely superb. I mean, his second goal was neat. It was tied with the first one. The way he leathered that into the roof of the net, he could have quite easily skied that. He took it so well. And you can just see the confidence. He's absolutely oozing through his veins at the minute. And let's not forget, he got an assist too. So he's looking really, really good. So he's providing a goal threat from the midfield. I agree on the point about needing the striker. But Nathan Teller's come in. He looks really sharp, looks hungry and to me, looks like a player that has completed this loan move with the intentions of making a name for himself and showing a case in himself to the championship. So, for Vincent Company, I mean, considering the transition he's actually undertaking, completely transforming the style of play, 
I think it's been a relatively solid start. Nine points from the first six games. And bearing in mind that nobody really has set a significant pace so far. Bearing in mind the league leaders have only got 12. It shows that they're right in the mix already. So I'm really encouraged by what I've seen from them. Obviously, the 3-3 draw with Blackpool last weekend, that was just a crazy game. It was just one of those games that don't come around very often. But this one, even though Wigan, to be fair, the scoreline probably did flatter Burnley a little bit. But it shows that they've got the ruthlessness without that out-and-out, you know, number nine that we're all saying that they need. So, really encouraging away performance to them. Good that Vincent Company's getting a, you know, a varied source of goals from within his team as well. That's always important. So, you've got to be honest and say that looking at it already, you know, Vincent Company is slowly beginning to show that he was the right man to take this job. The football's been attractive. The opening night against Huddersfield, everybody was really, really impressed. But looking at it now, was that a reflection of Huddersfield being that bad? Bit of both for me. I saw the game against Watford. Didn't think they were at full throttle that night, but in the second half, ticking the last 20 minutes or so, they chucked everything at Watford. Another day, on another day, they would have got a point. So, you know, they've been in every game and they've looked good in each game they've played to some manner of degree. For me, they'll be up there. There's no doubt about it. Like you say, Scott Twine, we still get to see the full capability for him at this level so for me Burnley in the final few days of the window to get a proven striker in just to offer a bit of support not to say Ashley Barnes is a bad striker just don't think he's going to score sure 20, 25 goals he's going to score 15 plus goals exactly Jay Rodriguez probably exactly more argument. so yeah probably get 10-15 you would have thought someone like him but if you can just get somebody else add that to the you know the pool of attackers they've got then there's no reason why Burnley shouldn't be up there and when you factor in the three clubs that came down from the Premier League last season, for me, I still think they are, even though there was so much uncertainty around them, I think I've seen the most encouraging signs from them so far. Are you concerned about the goalkeeper, Murich? Obviously, didn't have the best loan at Nottingham Forest a couple of years ago. An error last week with him playing at a pretty hospital pass into Josh Cullen, I think it was, for the Blackpool goal from Corbinu. And then obviously... A pretty haphazardous late challenge on, um, I can't remember which Wigan player it was that, that lobbed it over him, but obviously gave away a penalty from nothing, pretty much really a hopeful long ball over the top. So a couple of individual errors, slight concern? Well, I think obviously as a goalkeeper, your, your mistakes are always going to be highlighted a lot more than your good things. And yeah, he's uh, he's made a couple of questionable decisions in the last couple of games, but Vincent Company, if he didn't trust him, he wouldn't have brought him to the football club. And, you know, he's established himself as number one. They've brought in the lad from Paris Saint-Germain, Denis Franici, I think that's how you say his name. Don't know anything about him, so I can't comment on whether he's absolutely world-class or, you know, bang average. I don't know. So, it'd be interesting if he pushes him. Obviously, they've still got Bailey Peacock Farrell in the building. Not had a sniff as of yet this season. So, we'll see how we go. But I think Murich for now will certainly stay as number one. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Wigan obviously lost their unbeaten record. So that means there are two championship teams that are still unbeaten. And one of those is Rotherham United. They beat Birmingham City 2-0 up to fifth with a game in hand, defying all the odds and early season predictions with a great start for Paul Warren's side. As I say, only them and Preston North End unbeaten in the championship. And again, they were far the better team here. This wasn't a, a smash and grab job. They were the better team. Two good headers from Richard Wood, but they also had a penalty save from Dan, Dan Barlazer. Probably was just outside the area, in fairness. I think the contact from Mark Roberts on, on uh, Cheo Bene. But nonetheless, um, a deserved win for Rotherham. And a few players catching the eye. Connor Washington's getting a lot of plaudits for his hard graft. I think we, we all knew that... We, I think we all thought Washington was a very typical Rotherham striker. Going to work his proverbials off, run the channels, team player but not going to score enough goals. But I think he's a lot more of a being, well, he's proven to be a lot more of a goal threat in these opening championship weeks than we probably expected. The back three of uh, Grant Hall, Richard Wood uh, and Cameron Humphreys is, is performing really well, although Humphreys went off with a knock, which could rule him out for, for a, a little bit of time, Paul Warren said, so that's not good news. But they've got players like Wes Harding who come in and, and help that as well. So I think Hall's been a good signing and I think Humphreys has as well to go with the experience of Wood. Um, and obviously he's now the what the championship's joint fifth top goal scorer or something daft like that. <laughs> First time he's ever scored a brace in his career at 36 years or 37. And I think for Rotherham, although it's important that they need, I still think they need to get another striker in before the deadline. 
it's just as equally important, if not important, that they keep off Bene, Barlazer and Wiles. But I don't want this to be about that. You know, I don't want every week we praise Rotherham, but until the window shuts, we talk about the players they might lose. This was a win they deserved. They've got players in form. They've got a manager we both really like and that is, is you know, trying to prove himself at championship level still. But a fantastic start for Rotherham to be where they are after after this many games and with a game in hand too. And they've not conceded. And the new the record at the New York Stadium is uh, one conceded, seven points from nine, and what um, seven goals scored. So as good as it could be, really, for for Paul Warnside. Yeah, very very good. I mean, how can you find a single fault in what they've done so far? It's been a shock start. There's no other word for it. Nobody. Foresee, foresaw this come in and Paul Warren, you know, he didn't have the easiest time in the summer in terms of losing two key players that were integral in their promotion charge last season, including, a, you know, a Michael Smith, a 25-goal season striker. That's a big loss. But it's not phased them. If anything, it spurred them on. And you know from a Paul Warren team, regardless of what division they're in, regardless of the playing, you're going to get heart and you're going to get character from that set of players. That is what they do. And they showed it in abundance against Birmingham and it could have been more, let's not forget, obviously missed a penalty really with a good save from the spot. So it could have been more. But Richard Wood, I mean, my word, as the song goes, he's magic and he wears a magic hat in the eyes of Robin United fans. So he certainly... Bricks, though. I don't think that's true. Well, you never know with a centre-half. You get concussed you? Don't know. But he certainly wanted to win that ball for his first goal on Saturday. Let's say that much. He certainly wanted to get his head on that. He attacked that with some vengeance and really went for it. So, I mean, when you've got somebody who's like, what, Richard Wood is 37 now and you've got him scoring two goals, leading by example, playing, you know, through the skin of his teeth to give absolutely everything for the cause. It shows what Paul Warren's got to work with. He's got a bunch of fighters. He's got a bunch of players that want to succeed, want to play for the manager. And, you know, you look at the situation Rotherham are in at the minute nobody in their wildest dreams would have predicted this. And let's not forget, it's, it's unbelievable just how quickly things can change in this league. Two weeks ago, we were reflecting on Rotherham hammering Reading 4-0. Reading are now top of the league. It's absolutely unbelievable the fact they've already beaten the league leaders 4-0 and absolutely battered them. And Reading, weirdly enough, who we'll talk about, have not conceded a goal since. It's quite bizarre. But, you know... And they've been to QPR, got a point as well, Rotherham. So, Paul Warren, everything's slotting into place nicely. They're looking comfortable in the championship. And Richard Wood, I actually saw a small interview with him that he did on the radio after the game on Saturday. And he said that he was very impressed by the way the club had recruited players this summer in bringing in players that had not experienced relegations in the past. So, it's changed the mentality and the mindset of the group. It's lifted the spirits. Obviously, Rotherham, they've been that yo-yo club in recent years where they've been too good for League One, but just fell short in the Championship. But on this evidence so far this season, they're more than capable of fighting their own this time around. They've got, you know, they're punching above the weight as a club, there's no doubt about that. But if they can keep hold of the likes of Bartlett and Wales before Thursday night, you know, they, they should be absolutely fine this season because they've got that determination, that character. And Paul Warren, for me, he's probably one of the most likeable managers in the Football League, without a doubt. Yeah, definitely. You like to see them do well, Rotherham. And although we were part of the, the group that broke them off, or didn't write them off, but well, obviously have them in the relegation zone, well, I still stand by who that. Wouldn't, it's great to, to see them fair. define the odds. Yeah, great Definitely. To see them we the love odds. nothing more than it. We love nothing more than a little shock story on this podcast. Look at well, how we fell want, in love. You want a shock story, George? I've got a shock story for you. Reading, uh, Reading FC are top of the championship. I know. Another team Millwall. that we wrote off. And uh, after beating Millwall 1-0 at the Den, um, three wins in a row, no goals conceded. Naby Sar on debut, heading in after uh, some a, a good corner routine. And um, Reading played some really nice football, didn't they, at times? Like, there was a move in particular in the second half. Uh, I think Ince played the decisive pass for Jeff Hendrick and he should have doubled the lead. But that was just really nice football. Um, Shane Long should have scored two to make it 2-0. And this probably should have more been... 2 or 3 nil, then it should have been one all. if I'm being completely honest. And that's a sign of the improvement that Reading have made in the last few weeks, as daft as that sounds, because they were pretty awful when they got thumped at Rotherham, albeit there were some individual errors. It's shown what, what Paul Ince can do with a little bit um, 
you know, with a few players coming back, I think that's helped. Signing Saar, Hutchinson coming back fit as well, Lucas Schwau coming back in. I do think that's helped, but why? Of course, it would. You know, you can't rely on it. the bench for most of the season has literally been teenagers from the academy, so that's uh, not exactly a luxury for a manager, is it? But the reaction since they lost to Rotherham has been pretty outstanding for Reading. They sit top of the table. None of us saw it coming, and um, it'll be quite happy silencing the doubters for for a few weeks, if not longer. Paul and send this Reading squad as well. Without a doubt, it's. It's the shock story of the season so far, albeit only six games in. But considering we sat here two weeks ago and reflected on a 4-0 Morland at the hands of Rotherham, where Joe Lumley had an absolute stinker, the fact they've followed it up not just with three wins, but three successive clean sheets as well, that is a remarkable turnaround. And let's not forget what they've beaten in that run. They beat a Blackburn side who were top of the league at that point. They beat a Middlesbrough side who were one of the favourites for promotion. And they went to Millwall over on a run of five successive home wins dating back to last season. So they've not exactly had an easy set of fixtures in that run. So Paul Ince can be immensely proud of his players, the way they've responded to that Rotherham Morley. And he can also take a lot of credit for the way he's shaped things and improved things for the better from that game. It really is, you know, the, the biggest shock of all because Reading... Obviously, the off-field issues are not as bad as they were, but still things going on in the background that don't seem overly brilliant. To be top of the league after six games, if you're in that position, everybody's happy. Regardless of what status in the season it's in, you'd rather be top of the league than bottom of the league after six games. So, Paulings can be very, very proud of everybody around the football club because it's been a very, very encouraging start. Let's not forget as well, obviously, they were away at the weekend. They've won every home game so far. That's another record to be proud of. Only one of three clubs that have still got a 100% record at home in the championship this season. So if they can keep that going, you know, they could be onto something this season, Reading, in terms of exceeding expectations of not being down there all season long. Not saying they're going to stay at the top of the league. They might do. They might fool us all. But, you know, it certainly gives cause for optimism that they are going to do far better than people expected from them. So for Paul Ince, you've got to give him huge amounts of credit. Big game, though, coming up next. We record on Sunday. They've got to Sheffield United on Tuesday night. That will be a very stern test. But they won their last season. They're only the, the only side that has beaten Paul Heckingbottom at home in the league since he got that job at Bramall Lane. So, they'll go there with confidence. They'll go there top of the league. And can you believe it? Six games in. On Tuesday night, we've got a top two battle between Redden and Sheffield United. Not many people would have expected that only a fortnight ago. Absolutely, and another team, and finally rounding off, that, that got their first win at the weekend was Middlesbrough. They got off the mark against Swansea City, winning 2-1. Looks better instantly, doesn't the team? Matt Clark, really good signing. He's been brought in for £2.5 million this week from Brighton. Slotted straight into that left centre-back role. It's quite amazing, really, that Middlesbrough have been looking for a left centre-back all summer. Matt Clark's not been involved at Brighton at all. And it's only now the deal's getting done, really. I'm surprised other championship clubs haven't tried to do that deal. He's been player of the year in four of the last five seasons. Uh, at his various clubs at Derby and Portsmouth and West Brom last season. And I think a back three of McNair, Lenehan and, and Matt Clark in that order, right to left, just looks settled. Players in the right position. This is something I spoke about last week, of course, on the pod, that they didn't look quite right and settled and round pegs in square holes. It looked much more fluent um, against Swansea. And I thought they were good value for this win. I think, if I'm being completely honest, I think Middlesbrough deserve to have more points than they've got. I can only really think of the Reading performance that was really abject or below par. I think they've been unlucky in some of the other games. Should have beaten Stoke, for example. Their late equaliser. Should have been out of sight on the opening day against West Brom. Uh, didn't take the chances, didn't have the strikers in. West Brom come back into the game. And there's been other results as well where Middlesbrough have been unlucky not to get all three points. So... Definitely good value to at least have a win this season and certainly to win this game as well. Um, started with Munoz and, and Marcus Force on the bench, so they're going to come into the team as well. It was Riley McGree playing in a more advanced role behind Duncan Watmore, and he, of course, got the opening goal. Um, did Riley, Sorry, he got the second goal, Riley McGree. It was a, a nice move, well worked. And I say, I think it's a win that's definitely been coming and, and is deserved on the balance of play of their season so far. I am worried about Swansea, though. They just look really blunt in possession. And had it not been for a, a penalty, they wouldn't have really made a dent in this game, I don't think. No, definitely not. 
they they've started really slowly. I tipped Swansea for the top six this season, but then they're going to tip ready to finish just outside the relegation zone. So what do I know? But they've not had a good start, have they? It's been really uninspiring for Swansea, and I thought they would really kick on after last season because there was some really promising signs. But like you say, they just look a little bit blunt and almost as though they're missing a spark in attack, which is surprising considering they've got a, a duo that between them scored over 30 goals last season in Pirro and Mike Lobafemi. So it's been a really bad start for them. And when you think about their home form as well, obviously they were 2-0 up against Millwall going into any time. They didn't win that game. Their only winners come by that late 1-0 win at Blackpool. So it's been a really poor start to the season for them. One win from the opening six. It is really, really poor. For Middlesbrough though, it's a big weight off their shoulders. When you've got the expectation of being the promotion shake-up this season, the last thing you want to do is start slowly. We can... Obviously, factoring the fact that Chris Wilder's been, you know, he's been begging practically to get strikers through the door. Still, for me, they still need one more at the very least. But it is slowly coming together. And like you said, the performances have been there. If you've got that element to it, you know you're heading in the right direction. And they should have more points than what they've got. And I think the same applies to West Bromwich Albion as well. They've certainly played a lot better than what their results have suggested so far. So... At this point, I just look at it. Yeah, Middlesbrough brilliant. They've got the first win on the board. This should only improve. But at this stage, teams are still settling down. The table's still taking shape and settling down. There's going to be a lot of movements. By the time we record again next week, it'll be all change. So for Borough, it's really important they've got that first win on the board. Made a couple of good signings in the past week or so. Matt Clark, a very astute signing. Strengthen the back line. Add something going forward the way Chris Wilder likes his centre-backs to play. So, you know, it, the jigsaw is slowly coming together for him. But now he's got that first one on the board. It gives them something to build on and moving forward. And if they'd not have won that game on Saturday with the way respects one they've started the season, I think there would have been a lot, uh, a lot more doubts creeping in. But first win, they're up and running, onwards and upwards now. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. We're going to round off this week's podcast now with our shocks and bankers. There is a full slate of midweek championship action, but as always on this podcast, we're going to flick forward and look ahead to the next weekend's action. George, plenty of um, it's really difficult to pick your shocks and bankers when there's a midweek slate of fixtures, but obviously we like to keep the pod fresh. What have you gone for for next weekend's action? Well, I've actually only just looked at the fixtures and realised the amount of lack of games we've actually got on Saturday. It's very few, actually. Three on Sunday next weekend. Uh, which makes things interesting. But in terms of my banker for next weekend, I'm going to go for mm, a difficult one, but I'm going to go for Preston to win at home to Birmingham. They're finally going to score a goal at home. They're going to get off this run of nil-nil draws and they're finally going to win. So I'm going for Preston as my banker at home to Birmingham. For my shock, I'm going to go for another Saturday game and I'm going to go for Rotherham to beat Watford. I'm going to go for Rotherham to keep up that good home form, provide a bit of a shock. So Preston for my banker, Millers for my shock this weekend. I've got half the same as you. I've got the same banker. I'm going for Preston to beat Birmingham at home. I think Preston, I have to say, they were second best against Cardiff at the weekend. Definitely they were They were second best. Cardiff deserved to win that game in the nil-nil draw. Um, but Birmingham, I'm a bit worried. As I say we didn't. I didn't have great expectations going into the season, but that's early season optimism has definitely started to drain and disappear. The, the five without a win in all competitions. They were battered against Rotherham in all truth. They were um, did, did did all right against Watford. Got a point recently, but they've not been good. Um, some suggestions, some reports that, that there was some quite loud disagreements in the dressing room after the the defeat at Rotherham, which is not something I mind, in fairness. I think that's a good thing, really, accountability and holding high standards. But it's not been a great um, month or so for John Eustace. So I think Preston have been unlucky. I think Preston are more like, uh, should have won more of their games than they should have lost in this glut of nil-nil draws. The, The weekend was probably the first game where Preston were lucky to get a point. Whereas I think the game against Wigan... The game against Hull, uh, the game against Rotherham, I think they were definitely the better team and deserved to win. So I think Preston should have more points than they do, albeit they were lucky at the weekend for a point. So I think they'll beat Birmingham at home. I agree with you. And my shock, I'm going for Coventry City to beat Norwich because, as I say, Coventry haven't played that badly um, at all. I think some individual errors and poor defendings cost them. And Norwich, 
They've won three on the bounce. They've got back-to-back clean sheets. But I'm still not sold they're at their free-flowing best. And I think certainly they can get caught in transition and giving the ball away, playing out from the back. You know, we've seen that in the games against Wigan um, and they did it against uh, Hull as well, where sloppy play trying to play out from the back, they can get caught in transition. And I think the sort of players Coventry have got, you think Gordon, Giocarez, maybe Casey Palmer, I think in transition they could hurt them. So I'm going to go for Coventry to win at Norwich as my shock and Preston to beat Birmingham as my banker. I've also just realised I forgot to touch on the draws in the championship, so I'm going to do that now um, and mix this podcast order completely. So if you've listened this far, congratulations, you get to hear about the draws. Um, There were some crackers, so it's worth going into them. Blackpool 3, Bristol City 3. Another six-goal thriller for Blackpool. Led twice and then had to snatch a late equaliser with Theo Corbinu on loan from Wolves. He scored for the second week running. Um, Blackpool... Certainly cutting loose. They're probably a team we, we certainly under uh, Neil Critchley we, we would have said as not bland, but they were fine margin team, weren't they? They were more likely to to steal one 0 wins than they were to to go all out. So for them to score six goals in the last two games is quite eye catching. Um, Huddersfield two, West Brom two. Uh, welcome to the Championship, Tino Angerin. I think it's fair to say he's he's certainly started his career now with Huddersfield after a. I wouldn't say a lackluster loan, but he was still getting up to fitness and, and, and play, trying to work his way into a very good Huddersfield team last season. Given the start here, um, two good goals. The first was an absolute screamer, of course. The second, is, I have to say, it's pretty poor from West Brom. First, Dar Roche. I'm not sure what he does. He just sort of misses the ball and slides into the advertising boardings. And then uh, Button beating at his near post. I think you always look at the goalkeeper when a goal like that goes in. So two individual errors, but a well-taken sh- uh, strike from Andrew in nonetheless. And then West Brom did well to work their way back in. Two goals from Jed Wallace, um, two decent moves. The second in particular, a really good finish after an, a clever pass from Swift. And the, uh, probably one of the worst refereeing decisions of the weekend or the season so far. How on earth Will Boyle got away with the sliding tackle on Carlin Grant, where he just goes straight through the back of him? It looks a penalty from the, from the first viewing, naked eye. Now, the referee said to Steve Bruce, according to his post-match interview, that he couldn't see uh, someone was in his eye line, which is fair enough. But where's his assistant? Where is, you know, the people meant to help him? It's a clear penalty. And West Brom, very unfortunate. I feel very lucky to get away with that. Um, Luton won, Sheffield United won, which was the Friday night game. Uh, another good performance from Luton. Quite slight defending, really, from Sheffield United on the second phase from a corner for uh, Carlton Morris to head in. His second in two. I like Carlton Morris. I'm enjoying seeing him do well. And I think if they can keep him fit, I think he's a, a very good player with skill set that I'm not sure other Luton attackers have. I think I, I can see him being a very good foil and alternative and partner for Eli, uh, Elijah Adebayo. So I think that's a good partnership. I like to see him do well. But the story really was Ollie McBurney ending his goal drought since uh, two, 2000, sorry, December 2020 was his last league goal for Sheffield United. So a long wait. He missed about four sitters against Blackburn the week before as well. So um, he'll be delighted to get himself back on the score sheet. And then the other game was nil-nil, which we just spoke about, Cardiff-Preston. Five nil-nils in six for Preston. I would say in the majority, they they deserve more and to win those games than lose them. That certainly wasn't the case in this one, though, with Cardiff being the better side. Uh, But for better finishing and this elusive striker we've spoken about on a few occasions, George, Cardiff uh, would have won the game. If you're Preston, George, good start to the season or bad start to the season? Well, at one end of the pitch, it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, six clean sheets out of six. Eight, you can't eight, grumble eight with that. Six. Or do you look at the yeah. performances and say, I would say, apart from the Cardiff game at the weekend, they were more likely to win those draws than lose them. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? In fact, obviously, they, they get to concede in six games. That is a remarkable record and you can't deny that one. But the fact that they've only scored one goal is obviously a major, major concern. So it's a really bizarre one. It's almost bordering quite, quite funny now. It's weird that they're just constantly. When I checked the results on Saturday and saw they draw nil nil as well, didn't it? That's I couldn't the believe they drawn game of the lot. I couldn't believe that they'd drawn nil nil again. I couldn't honestly. When I saw it, I thought, "Oh my god, it's happened again." So. It's a really strange one for Ryan Lowe. So, obviously, he's going to be delighted that they've not conceded a goal. That's really impressive. He can't deny that. I mean, 
for Freddie Woodman, a new signing, he couldn't have dreamt as a better start as a goalkeeper, should he, at a new club? Six clean sheets out of six. So in that sense, brilliant. But obviously the other end, it's not so good. So Coventry away next for them on Wednesday night as we record Sunday evening. That's a game where surely something's got to give. Coventry's first home game of the season. They're going to be fired up for it. Surely that this little pattern of nil-nils is going to come to an end. Want some goals, both ends. Make them a bit more entertaining. Yeah, I think the the, the benching of Emil Rees-Jakobsen has been a bit of a weird one, given they can't mm. seem to score. Um, obviously, there's been transfer speculation around him. I think the window shutting should see him come back into the team and hopefully he'll, you know, Preston are more likely to score goals with him on the pitch. I think that's abundantly clear to everyone apart from maybe Ryan Lowe. Um, that does mark the end of this week's Championship Chat podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed wherever you get your podcast from to make sure you're getting the latest episode from us every single week. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24 as well. As always, a huge thanks to our partners at Cards Accepted for their support this season. Make sure you go and check them out. We are very grateful for their support this season on the pod. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier.